Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. Frances Saley, an accomplished senior level corporate real estate and workplace executive with a broad-based global background, is my guest. Frances has designed and implemented successful portfolio services programs for two global service providers and hundreds of clients. He is a respected thought leader in the evolution of remote work, driving the transformation of the workplace and its impact on the built environment. Francis has an MBA in finance and a BA in psychology and has worked at CBRE, Accenture, Newmark Group, and the Nashville chapter of the NAIOP, an organization that provides advocacy, education, and business opportunities for developers, owners, and investors of office, industrial, retail, and mixed-use real estate. Hey, Francis. Uh, welcome to the Let's Get Real podcast. Really excited to have you on the show this week. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Sandra. Great to be on the um, on the program with you and looking forward to this very much on a subject near and dear to my heart, but we'll get to that. So a little bit about me. My professional background is almost entirely consumed with corporate real estate and uh, corporate services in real estate. It really started right out of college. I joined a, a local bank and four months into a management training program, I was a psychology major, which probably didn't make me a, an ideal candidate for many banking functions, but uh, it did make me a good candidate for corporate real estate. So in four months, I went to this small group that was doing corporate real estate, which was kind of interesting. I learned a lot and, uh, you know, grew into, into that business. So I had the experience of the typical corporate real estate manager who has the users calling and saying, I don't have enough space. It's too hot. When can we move to a bigger, a bigger area? You know, we're really, we don't have no place for our new people, that sort of thing. And at the same time, the bosses are calling and saying, you're spending too much money. How could you possibly have a budget like this? It doesn't make any sense. We need to cut costs. So that's a really high pressure job. Learned a great deal there. But in the end, wound up convincing the board to build a new headquarters building, which was a great experience for me. Learned a great deal there and um, got the development bug. So I moved into the commercial real estate development business in office and industrial properties and uh, did that in five states with two companies and uh, learned a great deal there. At some points, had had a really decent balance sheet, and then the crash would come and the balance sheet would go away. So after a little bit of that, I <clears throat> decided I wanted to be in business for myself. And I formed a, a small company with really just me and a couple other people joined a little later to do corporate services in portfolio services, lease administration and related tasks. To, it was at the time when um, building information databases and beginning to do scanning of documents and that sort of thing was just happening. And there was a lot of that work around. So uh, we built a pretty good business there and got uh, some good corporate clients, uh, one of which was a major provider. Uh, in the space, and um, we did major projects with them around the country. They uh, wound up buying the company 10 years later, and I went to work for them as a lead in that function 
you know, for quite a while. Um, then after that, joined another corporate services provider doing essentially the same thing, but in a new way. We decided we were going to outsource the or offshore the back office from the U.S. to Asia, and we did that very effectively. It was uh, a really good experience, cut a lot of costs, and um, really made us much more efficient. Uh, and also, in in the end, we we were able to move to a remote environment for our team. We had teams in Pittsburgh and Dallas. Uh, I was based in Dallas at the time. Mm-hmm. But people were driving an hour and a half each way to work. And they started to come up and say, you know, couldn't we do this work from home? We have all the tools. And we said yes. Actually, we, the, we said yes after we lost someone to a competitor because they said yes. <laughs> so we said yes. And we began, began to do the work from home thing. Eventually, the, and this was a year before, a year and a half before the pandemic, we were almost entirely a remote and uh, it was a very effective operation and people loved it. Then spent a short time with a um, uh, consulting uh, provider and um, did some real estate consulting for them. But the moment of truth hit at the pandemic where I convinced myself that the biggest new thing in real estate, corporate real estate, uh, was the pandemic and the impact that was going to have on both the workplace and corporate real estate. So that's where I am today. What a uh, what an impressive background. It's always fascinating to me to hear about just kind of how people ended up in sort of the roles that they currently play, either as an independent or in, you know, for the current employer that they're working in. They seem to all have come up through the ranks, actually sort of working in the trenches and kind of learning, you know, the hands-on experience and sort of the takeaways from that and just kind of how you build up your career over time. Um, I did not know that you had a psychology background, so I absolutely agree. That's definitely a great thing to have when it comes to corporate real estate because I've been in sort of similar shoes where, you know, you got people coming at you from all angles about this isn't working and, you know, that's not working. And I want, and you've got to think about people's behaviors and kind of like how do you minimize that sort of, you know, just constant unhappiness that people seem to bring forward when you're in corporate real estate. There was always a saying that, you know, if people aren't complaining, yes. that's actually a good sign. <laughs> that's it. I wish I should point out, though, in, in the first few months I was with the bank, I remember an experience uh, in some accounting group and they said, you need to debit this and credit this. And I said, how do you feel about the debit? You know, and that that led me to the conclusion I need to go back to school. So I did go back and get an MBA um, in finance. So I know a little bit about it. But, yeah. you know, psychology is a really interesting area. And I think particularly at this time, it's a very important uh, subject to uh, to look at for the workplace. For sure. You also mentioned a, a little bit about the sort of work from home exposure. Around what, what year was that when you first got exposed to the work from home option or people started expressing interest in that? Well, I'm I'm sitting in my home office, which I started my business in, and that you know 25 years ago. So um, I've been working from home for a lot. I did have work in office experiences, both with the providers who you know, who acquired us. We did have an office here in Cincinnati um, and worked in the office and did commute. Um, but the experience that I mentioned in terms of offshoring and uh, really people doing it for the first time was in Dallas, and that would have been 2017, 18, something like that. So it was a few years ago, before the pandemic. Right. Okay. So given sort of your your background in corporate real estate and just kind of the, the different sort of areas that you've worked in, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your perspective with respect to, you know, just the history of the office. So just thinking about those last 25, 30 years, 
how did the office emerge? How's it changed in the past 30 years from your from your point of view? Okay, well, actually quite a bit. Um, and I think we should really start with why there's an office to begin with. And I think the reality is that the major driver for getting people together in one place was that all of the knowledge work was done on paper. Everything was on paper. There weren't copy machines, frankly. You had to have original documents. And there were papers and files of papers. Uh, so in order to use those papers and do anything with them, you had to be in the same place. You also didn't have telephones. You didn't have other. You didn't have air conditioning. So, you know, it was really pretty rough back in the primordial office. But uh, things began to change, I think, uh, around 1950. Air conditioning came out, which is great. Uh, in terms of technology, major advances in the in the 90s, I think, in terms of the Internet, certainly, and being able to digitize documents. And that was really the beginning, I think, of the the movement to do things anywhere. And I think it started really with people uh, who had notebook computers. Those eventually came out and they could they could put their work on their notebook computer, go home and do something on it and come back to the office and then upload it into the into the land and and work on it. And of course, since then, obviously, there's um, uh, the cloud has has made it so much easier for for almost everybody to do anything from any place as long as you can get an Internet connection. Um, so it really obviated a need uh, for people to come together to get the work. So the work followed them wherever they went with a couple of clicks. Yeah. Um, what What's, of course, missing in the remote environment as it exists is how we interconnect with other people and how we exchange ideas, how we um, innovate and plan and create new things. That's really the missing piece, and I think that in the remote work environment, that that's the thing that requires the most the most attention going forward. And I call that the uh, remote infrastructure. We know that that exists in the office. The legacy office has all of that. You know, it has everything. It has the rooms. It has the technology. It has all the people. Uh, it has food, but it doesn't have the attraction of it has the uh, the deficits associated with the commute, uh, the cost of that, the time associated with it. And all of the other nuisance things that you'll see about being in the office. And most of those occur around the water cooler on the way to the men's room or the ladies room, you know. Um, but there is a nuisance factor being together with people all the time. And, and that's really a negative on the office, I think. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's interesting that the water cooler comment is a funny one because I know that there's been a lot of discussion about that on LinkedIn and other channels that I follow just around, you know, like how, how valuable are those you know, water cooler conversations when you think about work. And I think there's obviously something to be said about the social aspect of, you know, of work. Um, but, you know, the flip side of that is, you know, we've made our entire life about work. Like work is the be all and end all of what we do. Actually, just this morning, I posted something on on LinkedIn where you know a lot of people are saying, you know, there's sort of this this negative um, impact of work from home because of the, you know, the the impact on social skills and things like that. And I was thinking this morning, I was like, you know, there's some truth to that because, you know, I sort of reflect on my own personal experience. You know, I did work in an office. And so I had those experiences. You reach a certain point in your career, you're like, okay, I've had enough. I'm okay with working from home and never stepping foot in an office ever again. But when you think about, you know, the new the new kids on the block that are just joining the workforce that haven't had that experience, you kind of wonder, like, you know, what might their experience be like? And, you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of, you know, 
friends in our circle, just, you know, younger people that are have just graduated or on the verge of graduating, again, just in the, you know, friendship circle and just ask these kids, it's like, you know, how do you envision work? And so, you know, they still are thinking sort of the traditional office and kind of like going to work. Like, I don't think they've, they've really understood the impact of of, um, of, you know, work from home, remote work, just kind of what's actually happening. Like they're still going to school. It's still, you know, normal life for them and interacting with people. But, you know, I also think what's different with them versus us. And I think the biggest difference is they're virtually born with technology in their hands. I mean, they can do 10 things at one time with 10 different devices and be super effective which is overwhelming, at least it is for me anyways. If I try to replicate what they do, I was like, I don't know how you even do that. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty tech savvy to begin with, but I'm not that tech savvy. And so I think that's where there's a bit of a gap in terms of understanding the effectiveness from your point of view, right? If you look at it to say, well, I wouldn't be as effective doing that. Like to me, that's just major distraction for them. That's life. You know, they're on Instagram, TikTok, blah, blah, blah. They're consuming I mean, I guess that's the other part is you're consuming information versus creating and managing information, which is what we do in work. And so it's a little bit, a little bit different. But um, I just always think that, you know, in as much as people say that there's there's a detraction from working from home or working from anywhere, working remotely, whatever, whatever it is that we call it. I think you have to sort of consider all the factors because it's not that there's there's gain and loss. I think there's gain and loss in every aspect, in every generation, just because the experiences are different, right? So, but having said all that, um, what would you say, or how would you define what the office is today? That's a really good question. Uh, that reminds me of the inquiries in the Senate or the House recently, where they asked um, uh, someone who was up for a political office, can you define what a woman is? Um, and nobody wants to answer that question. Uh, so <laughs> I, I'm going to take the same, the same approach. Uh, 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 I'm not sure what the office is today, particularly as it uh, transforms, uh, because the workplace within it transforms into something that never existed before and is completely different. Um, uh, and I think we have to think about that. You know, what is the office for? And, and I think it is in the remote infrastructure for sure. But going back to the earlier point about the, the Gen Z people and the late uh, millennials, and I have a couple of those in my family um, that, you know, I sired. Um, and also your comment about their being good on the phones. I mean, I keep getting text from my daughter that has these links and I really need to have a computer in front of me to look at them and to do, and she doesn't think about it. She does it all on her phone. Um, but uh, I, I think going back to the initial reactions we had to the whole idea of perpetuating the remote workplace at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, it was the Jamie Dimons, the David Solomons who said, you know, you need to get back in the office. You need, there's corporate culture there. How can we develop corporate culture when nobody knows anybody and nobody has the opportunities to talk directly with another person. I think you have to segment the workforce a little bit into the nature of the work for sure. What is that work all about uh, and how much collaboration goes on? And I know that varies quite a bit in different work, uh, but also the age and the orientation of the, uh, the new employee. There's a new employee joining right out of school. 
or have they been doing that work for, you know, 10 or 15 years uh, and they know how to do it and can do it remotely, um, but need to know people? Or are they, you know, more mature candidates who have been doing this a long time and they can be really anywhere and do it, don't need to interact that much. And you can always interact virtually, uh, and there's a lot of that. And usually where you have inner in-person interactions in an office or someplace else, you're also going to bring in people visually anyway. So it just seems as if the virtual piece is there forever, okay? And it's just a question of how many people are together and where are they? And should there be times where people are all together in person, and I think they should be, but to def- go to the default position, which is, well, you can do that in the office, doesn't mean that the office is the right solution for those all people together meetings that might be quarterly or semi-annually or something. Um, so that's where I think you really have to dissect what is the need and where is that best served and what's the right solution, the optimal solution for the business and the employees. You know, I, I posted this this morning, actually, that there was a report out that productivity in the first two quarters of this year has dropped more than ever before. You know, and there's something going on there. Now, of course, some people will say, well, it's because people aren't working in the office. They're at home and they're watching television. Uh, I don't think that's true necessarily. There are a lot of other reasons for that. So I wouldn't default to say, well, if you had people back in the office, the productivity would go up. I think, you know, just the opposite would happen. So it's a very interesting subject. And I think it requires study, which hopefully is going on now. I think it's a great research area. Um, and hopefully we'll see some interesting um, conclusions to some research that's underway. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I, I did see your post and <clears throat> actually had a, a little sort of chat going on in LinkedIn yesterday on the statement that um, Sandir from, I think that's how you pronounce his name, um, from Google that had made the, the comment. Yeah, that had made the comment about, you know, productivity being being down and, and kind of like, you know, relative to the headcount in terms of what their expectations were. And I was like, OK, well, my question was, well, how do you measure that? But similar to sort of what you've just said, I this morning I was looking at just I was at looking at NASDAQ and just happened to look at Alphabet's, you know, um, uh, earnings per share, because uh, that whole thing, I think, was was the result of their Q2 results. So I was like, I'm curious to see what did their results look like? And so I saw they were they were profitable the previous two quarters and then. Q1 and Q2 of 2022, they saw a de- decline of about 3% in Q1 and a decline of about, I think it was like 6% in Q2. And so then I went and I Googled and I was like, when is, you know, Google's fiscal year? Well, it happens to be in February. And then I was like, hold on a second. Google also mandated people to come back in the office around April, which would have been into their Q1 and into their Q2. So, so even though it's not being said, it's kind of like, Maybe, I mean, again, we don't know for certain because to your point, I agree. I think that there's definitely an opportunity for some research there. But is it coincidental that you're at 22 percent, you know, earnings per share in in Q4 or and Q3 of last year? And now and where people were working from home and Q1 and Q2, which is shortly after you mandated people to come back to the office. The first month it was down. The second month it was even further down. So it's like. There seems to be potentially a correlation between maybe disgruntled employees or something else that's going on that it's like, okay, you're forcing me to come back. I recognize that I can be productive working out of the office. And so that's kind of a way to just dig your heels in, so to speak, right? So 
it's fascinating because it's that no one's going to come out and say it. There's no way to really prove it. But where you have information, it's kind of like, again, you begs the question, is it coincidental or, you know, is there actually a correlation there between the fact of whether people are in the office or out of the office and why we're seeing productivity? I mean, even just looking at research that's been done where, and there's been a ton of it. I was looking at a Gallup report last night where they're saying, you know, people are way more productive, you know, working outside of the office. It's, you know, people feel more productive because they're happier. And as a result, then it impacts their ability to be more engaged in their work. When you're pushed to go back to an environment that you don't necessarily want to be in, not because you don't want to work, but because you just don't want to do it from the office because you know that the technology enables you to do it elsewhere. It's interesting how it potentially impacts the psychology, right? Right. I'm sure there's some impact there. No question yeah. about that. Yeah. You know, we were talking recently, I know, about how productivity was being measured. And in the office, the really the prime measure was the boss looking through his glass wall to see who was doing something. Right. And that, that's not a really good measure of productivity. Um, yes. If someone's there and punching buttons. <laughs> so I think one of the things that has developed to some extent, and you may be, be closer to this than I am, uh, in terms of gaining knowledge about productivity and be able to actually measure it quantitatively, we certainly know a lot more about where people are and, and how much they're producing. That can be easily measured and analyzed on an ongoing basis. And, and I suspect, uh, given some thought, you know, you'd be able to track that productivity in terms of where they were. So if you had a, an objective measure of productivity and you have the objective data with respect to where people are, that's an experiment waiting to happen, I think. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that there's definitely opportunity. Kind of also begs the question of another thought process that I had, which was thinking about the fact that work is shifting, right? So you've got this shift that's happening. A lot of the old practices of how we work are shifting in this new way of working, and it just doesn't work, right? And so it kind of begs the question, are the KPIs wrong? Are they dated? Like, do we need to be measuring things differently in terms of whether it's productivity or engagement or, you know, all of these things that we're measuring, but measuring based on different ways of working? The Does old it KPIs. still apply? Right. Yeah. Right. What, right. what are your thoughts in that regard? Well, I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time building KPIs for clients, and I guess the best way to do it is to come up with a handful that are really meaningful as opposed to 182 that uh, really aren't worth the time to, to calculate. Um, uh, I, I think to the extent that the work is being done differently uh, remotely, that uh, the KPIs associated with that work must be reviewed and changed to adapt to how it's being done. In the article that uh, we talked about earlier in Yahoo today, uh, they talk about the two things that were going to improve productivity. There were only two that they mentioned. One was remote work, and the other one was AI. Uh, and to the extent that you can build AI into your operation, uh, you're going to have a greater level of productivity for sure. So I think and AI is really, you know, in its infancy in terms of permeating through the through the office. It's certainly in, in some tech areas uh, far advanced, but not everywhere. Um, so I suspect a lot of processes can be improved quite a bit uh, the more AI uh, is injected into the workplace. You mentioned, you know, that you, you do KPIs. What are you seeing from a scorecard perspective are companies interested in measuring today? Like, what's their, what are they focused on? Well, the KPIs that uh, I would be 
experienced in are really the operational KPIs associated with an outsourcing program. And, you know, it would be the quality of the work, the timeliness of the work, the uh, any issues associated with the work, were there any losses, any mistakes that caused problems, those kinds of things. Those are all probably still in place. But again, it's a question of the components of it. If you were doing something manually, but that has now been replaced by some piece of technology, that has to be adjusted. And is the technology working right? Those kinds of things, I think, Mm -hmm. need to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think clients are really uh, uh, all concerned about the quality of the work, the timeliness of the work, and, you know, can I rely on it? Um, Because once the garbage flag goes up, you know, you have a great, it's greatly um, much more challenging to recover, let's put it that way, as a service provider. And, and whether that's done internally or outsourced, once that doubt, that seed of doubt is is planted, it's it's very hard to move forward. Right, right. So let's, let's shift gears for uh, a bit. Uh, you talked about sort of the, you know, the legacy office, just kind of where things were at. We're sort of at a stage right now where, there's a lot of uncertainty as we think about the future of the built environment. So let's talk a little bit about what becomes of the legacy office. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really great question. Um, and I tried to get some stats on this recently, which I think I shared with you. There were some somewhere in the post in terms of the amount of office space. And that's really a difficult thing to zero in on. Um, I mean, when you look at total commercial space, it's 87 billion square feet. Uh, now, very little of that is office. Um, office, I think, it, they, the number that I had here was something like 16 million, something like that. Or 16, yeah, 16 billion. But most of that is one-story buildings, two-story buildings, mom-and-pop situations. You really have to zero in on what the segment that I think we're primarily talking about, which is the multi-story in a lot of high-rise buildings. And that's a much smaller segment, but it's still – you know, a couple billion square feet of space, I think. I mean, you have 260 million, I think, in New York alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some, a lot of bigger markets. You add them all up, and, and so there's a lot of space. Um, my own feeling is that to the extent that it's concentrated in major cities in a downtown environment, that is really legacy real estate. There was a post recently that talked about uh, how this was all forecast, that uh, in the future, people – we're going to look at these major buildings and architecturally we're going to be baffled, amazed by them, but they could not see a real purpose for them anymore. And I think we're, we're, we have that vision in our heads yet. We hasn't, haven't experienced it yet, but I think it's coming. Uh, I mean, I think we see a lot of deterioration in occupancy for sure. And that's easy to, to validate. Um, there really is very little growth there. There is some growth in, in much better, higher quality buildings with better air conditioning, lighting, uh, amenities, that kind of thing. That will continue in those, in those markets. But it's all the other buildings that won't be able to keep up. That th- there is no market to support the quantity of space there. And there'll be, a, I think, a fair amount of deterioration in those markets. Some adaptive reuse will occur. You know, you'll get some multi-use properties emerging from them, uh, some conversions from office, maybe to residential or something like that. But that requires a very specific set of architectural characteristics. Um, that allow that to happen and to create products that are marketable. Uh, and there are many offices where that can't happen. So I think it's going to be an interesting period, difficult financially for a lot of investors and lenders um, in commercial real estate. 
Yeah, you and I talked um, earlier this week also about just companies um, like the FANG companies in particular that are heavily invested in real estate. Uh, we talked, we joked a little bit about Apple and just kind of the the donut office and how do you split right. the donut or how do you repurpose the donut for, you know, if if return to office, you know, ends up being truly dead where it's kind of we've hit sort of that all time. We're not going to exceed 30, 40 percent occupancy. Uh, you know, what are like you can kind of see why, you know, some of these companies are are really pushing hard for return to office because of the fact that they're so heavily invested in real estate. But as you think about that, it's like, you know, what happens in, in those cases? I mean, I mean, those are the ones that sort of stand out. But I know just from working in different portfolios that there's, you know, usually companies have maybe 20, 30 percent of their portfolio that's owned, which can be substantial. And they're, you know, office buildings usually. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, you know, what what do they do in that situation? How do you how do you start thinking about offloading space when, number one, there's no demand for space uh, from an owned perspective? Uh, you know, the whole fact that from an investment point of view, too, like there's been there's been conversations around, you know, our, the fact that, you know, buildings, older buildings, for example, need to be retrofitted or the latest topics around, you know, putting in more amenities. Like I saw an article last week, I think it's in New York City, the Empire State Building is putting in a bunch of amenities in hopes of, you know, bringing people back to the office. And it's like, are companies actually willing to, or if not companies, landlords, building owners willing to put money in without really sort of knowing whether or not people are going to go back? Like that seems a bit weird to me. The short answer is no. They're always going to want to put other people's money in there. So maybe they can get someone to invest in that. Um, I might be able to convince a lender to uh, let them borrow the money. But I, and I, it's going to be it's the financials associated with the retrofit today are really difficult. I think that's mm-hmm. also affecting the co-working market, too, because lenders are really sketchy about what's going to happen. And with good reason, because they really don't know. And I made this comment to several people. I mean, there's big buzz about co-working and there's, you know, Thousands of operators, really. Uh, a lot of them are small mom and pops, but a lot of that's going on. Uh, in terms of growth there, you see some announcements, but you don't see a lot of activity there. I, I'm kind of surprised, frankly. And I think it's driven by the financials associated with it. And the tenants, who most of whom already have these le- this legacy portfolio, and it's difficult for them to say, I have this 15-year lease, and I'm, I can't sublease it, and I can't give it back to the land. I'm stuck with it. And it's hard for people to deal with that, I think particularly in corporate real estate, I can imagine what that's like having sat in that chair. You know, I've got this portfolio, you leased it, and now what do you do with it? You know, that right. makes people nervous. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a lot easier to say, hey, we'll be more productive and we'll, and we'll put in a pool and people can go swimming at noontime. But like you said, I don't think that's going to work. Yeah, and, and, and I've, you know, I've, had, I've kind of asked the question to, like, many people. It's like, is there actually anything that, you know, a building could have from an amenities perspective to actually entice you to go back to the office. And they just look at me point blank and they're like, no, absolutely not. (laughs) I mean, you get the odd, well, if they have daycare or if they have, you know, whatever, you know, sort of amenity, but then you think of it and it's like, well, if you're working hybrid or you're, you know, two, three days a week, and now it's kind of the reverse of what's happening right now where, if you're you bring your child to daycare in closer to where you live, 
you drop the kids off and then you go to work. And then, you know, okay, on the days that you're home, the convenience is that you're close to home, so you just go pick up your kids. The reverse would be true then is that you bring your kids with you to work on the days that you go to the office. But then what happens on the day that you work from home? You still have to trek down to the office. So you're like, okay, you really haven't you haven't improved anything because you you still have potentially uh, a problem. Right. That probably worked in the five days a week in the office. It doesn't work in the one or two days. Yeah. So those investments are gone. Um, They just won't survive. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because when you were talking about co-working, again, we were talking about this earlier this week. I uh, interviewed um, Amina from Radius, which is a, a new company in the co-working space that's basically looking at bringing co-working into the suburbs through people's homes, which is very different. I mean, obviously, you know, we know that we don't need more construction. I mean, the suburbs don't have the buildings. They don't have the co-working spaces like you do where these are located in, you know, central downtown locations that you're still required to do the commute. It's kind of like, well, if I have to go downtown to use a WeWork space or whatever co-working space, I might as well just go to the office if the office is there. Like, what's the difference? And why would a company pay extra for me to go to this co-working space instead of just coming into the office? Maybe the building is newer. Maybe it's, up, you know, it's more updated and it has the latest and greatest in terms of airflow and kind of all that stuff that makes people feel more comfortable, potentially. Um, but if there's still a lot to be said about our company is going to be willing to put more money into having employees use other space when they have a commitment to a lease for another 5, 10, 15, heck, even 100 years, as I've learned as of recent. Um <laughs> Right. That you're like, okay, you know, this is the office space that you're expected to use if and when you do need an office. And so her whole concept of, well, you know, bringing the office into the neighborhood was really it really made me made me stop and think about like, well, what would be what would be the the reason to want to use that? And like if I'm working from home again, I I mean, I don't have young children at home, so it's kind of hard for me to sort of fathom. Why would I go use someone else's home other than maybe if I'm meeting with someone and it happens to be a convenient place for us to meet, which doesn't really work for me in particular, just because I live so far from the city center. But she was saying stuff like, you know, some people have like, you know, there's multiple people working from home. So, you know, husband and wife, you know, significant other kids that are doing school part virtually, part in person. You have young children at home and it's just there's too much going on in the household, as well as just some people who like the routine of actually leaving the house and I was like okay I get it because I can see that sometimes you just need a change of scenery but you don't necessarily need that change of scenery to mean that you have to drive for an hour or sit in traffic for an hour to have that kind of experience and so I think that that's fascinating as we think about you know just different uses of space and the fact that there's still a lot of concentration on the office and in, in essence it kind of almost feels like we're still trying to keep the office alive, which I'm having a hard time just trying to understand, like, why. You know, it's like, like you said, it's a it's a relatively small, you know, percentage of square footage when you look at it big picture. But you go into the downtown core of any major city and what do you see? You see the towers and then you start to imagine, well, what would life be like if these towers remain empty from here on in. <laughs> right. Well, I, I actually, I think that was Peter. It's Peter Drucker, I think, who made the comment about 30 years from now. And this was back at 
1980 or 19 something like that. That you know, we'll one day look at these things with amazement. That they're, they're beautiful buildings, but what do people do? Why did they go there? So, uh, because the people then won't have any sense of why that happened. I, I do think there's going to be uh, greater penetration in co-working in the suburban areas. And actually, this neighborhood uh, thing. I was just thinking about this myself. I mean, we have a 3,200 square feet house. Actually, we have a full basement that isn't finished, which I could finish. Uh, just me and my wife. You know, we had two kids. They grew up here and. Uh, but they're they're gone, um, and it's just us. Now, we're on this cul-de-sac, and there's maybe 40, 30, 40 homes, and there's nice people around here who have that issue of where to work. Well, I mean, we could easily convert a number of these rooms into offices, meeting rooms, whatever, and mm-hmm. form our own business, probably take some investment credits and tax credits, and we'll be able to depreciate the house and make it financially viable. I think that's a great idea, frankly. And I suspect there are a lot of people who, once a program was put together to do that, would be willing to do it. That's a great idea. So I think um, the people you mentioned uh, will have some success there. Uh, that isn't the traditional office, though, the traditional workplace. People are going to look at that with some suspicion as to whether that will fly or not, but I think it, experimenting there would make a lot of sense. I do see neighborhood centers occurring, and these are the centers uh, eventually which will be relatively close to most people. Uh, they'll be generic, okay, um, and they will have a hologram capability, so if you want to have a meeting, you'll go into a room, you'll, you'll, you just turn on a screen and it'll be a hologram. So you'll see people very much live, not avatars in the metaverse. You're going to see live people. You just won't be able to physically touch them. You can shake hands, but it's a, you know, it's a digital handshake. Um, that's going to happen. So that capability will be here eventually. And um, those kinds of meetings will happen. That's interesting. It's, it's funny. It's actually funny and fun at the same time to think about these possibilities. I mean, I remember, gosh, I don't know. I don't remember when the first time was that I saw, you know, the future and, you know, the flying cars and kind of how to solve all these, like the traffic congestion issues and, and things like that. And here the we fifth are. Element. You, know, you remember the fifth element. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce Willis, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like, okay, yeah, there's, there's sort of, you know, some crazy ideas out there. I mean, right now, the metaverse, for example, is a prime one. A lot of people talking about the metaverse. And I think I've spoken about this in the past. I mean, I used to, I was, I've always been intrigued by technology. So, you know, I, when my daughter was younger, she used to play on these, like, um, these metaverse sort of things long before Roblox. Like, I think there was one that was like, uh, Habbo Hotel was one of them and some thing that just, just kind of like this gaming thing that was really fun for them as kids. And then, I don't know if it was her or somebody introduced me to Second Life, which I, I was fascinated by. And Second Life is essentially what Facebook's now calling, you know, the metaverse and, and others that are now in that in that space. And it's really interesting when you think about the application of it, just because it's not new. It's been around for a very long time. It just hasn't been used for let me let me try, retract it. It hasn't widely been used for work. I know HP and manpower were definitely in those spaces. And it was it was interesting because, you know, you were an avatar. And so, like, the professionalism kind of disappeared because, you know, you had somebody with like a mohawk or you could basically dress yourself up however, which way, which way you wanted as an animal or as a, as a human. But it was just this ability to to actually see each other in this virtual environment and be able to feel like you're having a conversation with someone there. So similar to the hologram idea of where you've got people in a room to me, it's hokey because, it's again, it's that thing of, well, why do you have to be in a room to do that? 
You know what I mean? It's kind of like it, it's always going back to, to necessitating the location. If it's a hologram, do you know what I mean? It's like the, yeah. the association with the real estate makes zero sense. It's kind of like well, well, I think that's, that's true. You can certainly do hologram anywhere. Um, yeah. But again, think of the, the idea of a neighborhood facility in which you can go and get away from your kids and the dog and uh, get some peace and quiet and do your work and then also meet at a high level virtually uh, makes, I think that does make some sense. Yeah. And it's just what happens. You have to have the infrastructure for that for sure because that's expensive stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's probably where I, I kind of, I mean, I said, hopefully in time, the cost of being able to use technology to that extent will come down significantly because I think that, and it kind of leads to the next point in terms of, you know, how effective is technology? Because right now the whole push and shove or tug of war, if you will, is about, you know, is technology an enabler or does it actually impair your ability to be productive? And you've got people on both sides of the camp where in some instances, yes, technology can be effective. It can it can definitely be an enabler. But in other instances, you know, it it sort of detracts from the experience. It's clunky. It's not really where it needs to be. And again, I believe that that goes back to the fact that you're taking what you know from the physical experience of work in an office and you're trying to force fit it into a virtual world and it just doesn't work all the time. Right. Well, I think that's true. In the old days, they called those people systems analysts, you know, where they would figure out the new workflow uh, and then build the technology around that. I think what's happening today, frankly, big tech, you know, is building things, the whole Web3 thing, where you have crypto. They built something really neat, but it's very expensive and, you know, it's very risky. And you see what's happened in the crypto market. Same thing in metaverse. Uh, I mean, someone made the comment a day or two ago about people not people buying real estate in the metaverse yeah. is crazy. Absolutely crazy. Why it doesn't exist? Why would you want to buy real estate there? So but there are some good things there in terms of NFTs and things like that. But I think that we've sort of lost focus sometimes in tech. We build big tech that does a lot of really interesting things. And then we try to find an application that they can possibly do with it. You know, and does it make sense? Sometimes it doesn't work. I mean it works from a tech perspective, but it doesn't really help anybody. It doesn't advance society it doesn't generate income uh for the firm it's just there and it's you know you don't want to be left out there so you better get on board with mm-hmm. you know web3 not much to say about that yeah no i mean and I, I think that the other piece to it also is just thinking about you know the evolution of tech or the speed with which tech evolves i sort of look at it again personally from experience of going to work from one company to the next, what's the tech stack that they offer both from a software perspective and a hardware perspective and how that potentially impacts your ability to be productive. You, you know, we started out this conversation around how, you know, at one point, you know, there wasn't, everything was paper. And so there was no digital files. You didn't have access to stuff through your computer. You physically had to be somewhere to be able to access documents in order for you to be able to do your work. And it's kind of the same thing in the sense that, you know, I mean, now you've got SharePoint, you've got, you know, you're creating documents, you throw them on a shared file and anybody in the organization anywhere in the world can share those documents. But, you know, the example like I gave the other day when you and I were chatting was the frustration sometimes that technology also creates just because of the red tape or the bureaucracy around the tools and tech to enable people to be fully productive when they're working outside of the office. 
you know, is, is crazy. So the example that I gave was, you know, you're working on a document and, you know, it exceeds the limit that you're allowed to transfer over your network. And so you're like, okay, how do I get this to someone? The person is in another country or wherever in the world that they are. And so how do you get it to them? Right. And so that's a challenge. And I've faced that many times. And there's tools that enable you to do that. Obviously, IT doesn't want you to be downloading stuff onto your computer. Sometimes they even lock you out. And so that, I think, is in essence what prevents people from being fully productive. I mean, the tool stack that people use that Again, thinking about the younger generation and just watching and learning about stuff that they use that you're like, I didn't even know that that even existed. You know, like my daughter, who she's 30 and I mean, you know, sort of being under my wing and just always being involved in tech. She's she's like super like savvy and virtually everything. And so when I'm telling her, hey, I'm really struggling with this one thing, she's like, oh, you should use this. And I was like, well, what is that? And then it's like, oh, it just does it for you. And I'm like. Like, really? I didn't even know that this existed. And so it's things like that. So the, the awareness, number one is the awareness that there's tools out there that, that are enablers. And number two is the, the, the red tape in terms of being able to get access to those tools or to be able to use those tools when you're working so that you're not then held back trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this within the confines of what I'm allowed to do in the organization, right? Right. And I think that sort of all stems from the concerns that companies have around privacy and security as it relates to technology. But, you know, do you think that that's something that will will be not necessarily lighter? I'm kind of struggling right now for the word, but just something that will take on a, a slightly different direction in the future as we think about remote work and what that actually means, because, Security, I mean, if you're working from home, you know, you're on your home Wi-Fi. How secure is your home Wi-Fi? Right. 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 And so everything falls under privacy and securities. You can't do anything as it relates to data or sharing information or whatever because of privacy and security. But is that the catch-all for everything? Well, I I think we generally need in the business more progressive um, IT professionals in every organization who understand how, uh, what the risks are in the remote environment and how to deal with them. Is the VPN, is it, um, you know, some type of encryption? I mean, I don't know those tools and, and mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I've used them, but I don't really understand all the details of them, but someone does. And certainly that should be able to be crafted today, uh, based on the technology we know. We know there's threats. They're everywhere. And, uh, if you talk to anybody, you know, uh, who has uh, an infrastructure, uh, and how many, how many hits did you get this week that were, you know, trying mm-hmm. to break in and, and everybody's trying to break into everything. So you need progressive people that will allow the work to be done remotely, but have the tools and the processes to control the risk. I think that's really what you need. I mentioned, I think, um, uh, the other day that uh, I mentioned the situation in, in uh, Dallas where we went fully agile that the CFO would only allow desktops, which were you know, $500 or $600 and notebooks were a thousand dollars. And why should I spend $500 more for this computer? Well, uh, they were glad to do that, you know, at the time of the pandemic. Uh, and when we went virtual, that was a tough sell at the time, but everybody was glad we That's were right. mobile. Right. So, so you got to have that foresight, I think, in terms of structuring IT. The same kinds of issues are going on in HR, uh, you know, similarly in, in real estate as well, all struggling with this transformation of the workplace from the 15th floor to, you know, 15 or 20 different places. So 
you know, that's an evolution that's underway today. And we're, we're right at the beginning of it, really. So that's interesting. Um, I have to ask this question. I've often thought about the same kind of thing, but I often wonder, is it a make work? Because if you think about the fact that we've been two plus years working from home, where that infrastructure, there may have been companies that had that infrastructure, but probably very small, small percentage of companies that were prepared to deal with just being able to transition everybody to work from home and not feel the risk. You know, same thing with HR and other sort of you know aspects of the business. And as Mark Gilbreath said in, in a previous podcast, you know, nothing happened. They're like, you know, the shit didn't hit the fan. And so it's kind of like, is there a need for that? Is there a need to put policies in place? Is there a need to have these types of things in place? Or is that, again, it's more of a, a make work or sort of putting some sort of process around something that maybe doesn't even need process. I mean, hybrid to me is something that, you know, doesn't have a schedule, right? In order for hybrid to work, you can't have a process. You need to have maximum flexibility. You need to have the ability to basically work autonomously. And that sometimes includes the technology as well. Like, again, like just the example that I gave that I need to do something. I'm working on a global team and I need to be able to send information back and forth. And the restrictions that sometimes are put in place are inhibitive rather than truly supporting productivity. And so do you think that there that there is a need for that, considering the fact that most people have experienced the, uh, you know, the freedom to do some working on their own devices? I've talked to a number of people that, you know, who have desktops at the office and they didn't have laptops. And so it was, OK, you need to go out and buy a laptop or they have a laptop at home that they used as a, you know, so kind of like the bring your own device thing from years back of whether that was allowed or not allowed. And now everybody's doing it kind of thing. Well, right? I think uh, any organization today, whether they want to be fully remote or you know fully in the office even even if you wanted to be fully in the office today you don't know the next pandemic or the next reason why you can't be in that office i mean if we had the next variant in covid converted to a death rate of not 0.01 or 0.2 where it is where it's very low now mm-hmm. uh that it's 25% is the death rate or some other it's or Ebola. Who knows? Um, Monkeypox. I, I don't really know. But there may be a reason why you'll want to flip the switch and become fully remote. So I think the baseline setup has to be fully remote. And to be fully remote, whether you're in the office or not, the baseline setup has to have all of those processes and controls and IT infrastructure around it so that you can be fully remote if you need to be. And my sense is that there'll be a lot more of that in the future than the in-office structure, but we don't know that. I mean, to the point of why don't we have that today? You know, we're two years into it. Well, the reality is, if you think back, in the spring of 2000, after we had the month or two of panic, it was, well, we should be able to get back by August or September. Uh, oh, and the, oh, no, there's a variant that came out. We can't do that. And that just, we lost a year and a half of people dawdling with, are they going to come back to the office or not? Um and it's only in the spring of this year when yes. when everybody's okay RTO return to the office I call it return to the past it's kind of a bit of humor but that's when it kicked in so it's only been a few months that people have had this yeah we need to get people back and we had the boil the frog crowd you know the the three amigos as I call them you know, you got to be back in the office Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday well that didn't seem to work out very well for them and you showed me the other day a flat line on the castle return 
It's at, you know, 40% plus minus. And that hasn't changed in months. So we're probably flatlined. And that line is going to go down, not up, as we Correct. go ahead. I totally agree. Well, that was a great observation. Francis, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciated the conversation today. Uh, very enlightening and um, always fun to, to, to chat with you. Sandra, thank you very much. It's, it's always a pleasure. And look forward to the next time.